While he had participated in a coup earlier in his career, Juan Perón knew the best way to take power was to be elected. And the best way to keep power was to rewrite the constitutional term limits. If you enjoy these episodes on Argentina's Juan Perón, follow The Dictator's podcast, where we go deep into the minds of history's most despised despots. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. October 17, 1945, Buenos Aires, Argentina. 50-year-old Colonel Juan Perón may have been a prisoner for the last few days, but he knew it wasn't for much longer. Outside the presidential palace, hundreds of thousands of Argentines had taken to the streets, demanding Perón's freedom. The weak-willed politicians were terrified. Perón knew he'd been right to put his faith in the power of the people. But before he could give Argentina what they wanted, he had to get what he wanted. When President Edelmiro Farrell asked his terms, Perón said he wanted the government to be handed over to the Supreme Court so they could oversee the next elections that would take place ASAP. Farrell was surprised. Didn't Perón want to be president? After all, Farrell himself had been installed by a military junta. Those same men would certainly install Perón in his place. But Perón had survived too many military coups to think that that sort of power would last. He preferred to be elected by the power of the people. With their deal complete, Perón walked out onto the balcony. The crowd burst into thunderous applause. To Perón's surprise, it brought tears to his eyes. He held his hands to his heart. These people really loved him. In less than a year, Juan Perón would become the official leader of Argentina. And when he did, his country would fall under fascism. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring the reigns of 20th century caudillos Fulgencia Batista of Cuba, Juan Perón of Argentina, and Francisco Franco of Spain. Today we leave Cuba and return to Argentina as we begin our discussion on Juan Perón. This week, we'll follow Perón as he rose through the ranks as a young officer in the Argentine army, participating in several military coups and learning to play politics. And by the early 1940s, he became the most powerful man in Argentina. Next week, we'll chronicle Perón's years as president and how his initial populist reforms morphed into an increasingly corrupt and repressive regime. His fascist rule became so abhorrent, his successors did all they could to erase him from history. Coming up, we'll examine Perón's climb to the top. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. 
Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In the 20th century, no man held more influence and power in Argentina than Juan Perón. Even after his death, Perón's shadow dictated how politics were run in the second largest country in South America. It was Peronism that helped navigate Argentina out of post-colonial turmoil. And it was Peronism that ultimately led to the military dictatorship of Jorge Rafael Videla, as we discussed in a previous episode. Prior to Juan Perón's arrival on the political scene, Argentina had been defined by its colonial history. Technically independent from Spain since the early 19th century, the country still held on to the old colonial order. Thanks to its meat, grain, and mining exports, the country's economy remained largely tied to European powers, and later to the rapidly growing United States. Many of Argentina's wealthy elites had European heritage, and these new oligarchs were the true power. The yoke of colonialism may have been thrown off in 1816, but inequality continued to thrive. Despite Juan Perón's Creole heritage, his family was lower middle class, which meant his future was set in stone. As he got older, he realized that the only way to break past the class barrier and succeed was to reshape the country in his image, even if it meant flirting with fascism. Juan Domingo Perón didn't start out with dreams of power. Born in 1895, he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a rancher. Perón's father, Mario, was a medical school dropout who left the squalor and rigid social hierarchy of the city for the countryside. Mario could have been drawn to the popular myth of the gaucho, essentially the Argentinian version of the cowboy. Gauchos represented rugged individualism, freedom, and the honesty of living off the land. Chasing this dream, Mario Perón moved his growing family all around the vast countryside. He was determined to find the perfect ranch and fulfill his vision. Thanks to this quasi-nomadic lifestyle, the young Juan Perón was exposed to Argentina's diversity of culture. Much to his father's delight, Juan embraced the outdoors and enjoyed working alongside the older and more experienced ranch hands. So it was a rough transition when Perón, who was about 10 years old, was sent back to Buenos Aires for school. Ranching had afforded Mario enough success that he decided he wanted at least one of his sons to do what he didn't and become a doctor. 
But the young Perone didn't fit in among all the refined, well-educated city kids. He was independent and didn't need to rely on adults. Perone couldn't believe how sheltered and childish the so-called urban elites were. To Perone, they were weak. When he was 16, Perone finally found something in the city that appealed to him, the National Military Academy. With its focus on athleticism, it seemed a bit more his speed than medical school. Plus, the military's rigid structure, stability, and sense of brotherhood appealed a lot more to him. That sense of community was strengthened two years later, when he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the infantry. Unlike the upper-class cavalry, the infantry was full of young men like himself, middle- and lower-class men not from Buenos Aires. Perón finally came into his own in his early 20s when he discovered a passion for military strategy, history, and philosophy. When he was offered an opportunity to teach these subjects at military academies, he leaped at the chance. He quickly discovered he had a natural talent as both a teacher and leader. His students, mostly working-class infantrymen, adored him both for his dedication and charisma, and in their eyes, Perón was one of them. Perón loved teaching. It allowed him to help others who felt like outsiders figure out how to navigate an unfamiliar society. More importantly, though, he loved the power it gave him. He realized that with his speaking skills, he was able to bring the class around to his way of thinking. His students hung on his every word. In 1926, when he was 30, Perón's skills as a leader had been noted by the military. Recognizing his potential, he was sent to the Army's top war college just outside Buenos Aires. Perón was officially one of the military's rising stars. But while Perón was finding success, his country was in trouble. Argentina's reliance on international trade meant the Great Depression hit the economy hard. Everyone except the wealthiest elite was affected. Argentines blamed the government for not doing more to help them. It didn't help that President Hipólito Irigoyen and his urban middle-class friends were profiting off international business deals while everyone else was suffering. Soon, the right-wing conservative party began to make noise about getting rid of the president, even though his term wasn't up. One of the men leading the call for a coup was a former deputy of the conservative party named Jose Uriburu. And Uriburu had an advantage. He was a general in the army. Argentina saw its military as a respected, non-political entity that could act as a balancing force when the partisan government ran amok. For the last few decades, the government had been relatively stable, and the military had stayed out of politics. But by the middle of 1930, with the economy struggling and President Irigoyen increasingly seen as corrupt, the opposition started to suggest that maybe it was time for the military to intervene. And the opportunistic General Uriburu was more than happy to oblige. But Uriburu was a far-right extremist. He openly advocated for an authoritarian government modeled after Mussolini's fascist Italy. He planned on using a coup to turn Argentina into a military dictatorship. Naturally, this put Uriburu at odds with those who opposed the current government, but also didn't want authoritarianism. Instead, 
other opposition leaders rallied around former Minister of War, General Agustin Justo. The moderate Justo saw a military coup as merely a temporary measure until new elections could be called. Caught in the middle of the debate was Captain Juan Perón. Perón had never considered himself especially political, but suddenly his career depended upon choosing between Uriburu and Justo. Perón's mind was made up in June 1930 when he watched Uriburu speak at a private officer's event. He didn't pay much attention to Uriburu's politics, but he liked the man's demeanor. Uriburu seemed courteous and thoughtful, exactly the kind of person Perón thought should be in charge. However, as Perón campaigned for Uriburu amongst his fellow officers, it quickly became clear that the Uriburu movement was disorganized and the majority preferred General Justo. Recognizing the importance of being on the winning side, Perón switched his support to Justo. But despite his small military support, Uriburu still thought he could take Argentina for himself if he moved quickly. On September 6, 1930, Uriburu and a small unit of troops marched across Buenos Aires. His plan was to walk right up to the presidential palace known as Casa Rosada and force Irigoshen to resign. The bulk of the military refused to get involved, opting to stay behind at the garrison of Campo de Mayo. But Perón decided he wanted to see firsthand whether the coup would succeed. He had switched to Justo's side, but now he wondered if Uriburu's quick, decisive action would prove him wrong. Perón drove across the city to the Casa Rosada. As he did, he saw civilian crowds filling the streets, cheering on the troops. Amazingly, Uriburu's coup had worked. The soldiers had taken Casa Rosada without bloodshed. No one came to President Irigoshen's aid, and he was quickly arrested. It was astonishing how easy it all was. Perón finally understood that the reason Uriburu had been the right man to back was because he was able to mobilize the masses and quickly gain civilian support. He didn't have to solely rely on his own troops. But Perón's regret came too late. When Uriburu formed his new military junta, he immediately purged supporters of Agustin Justo, including Perón. Captain Perón was reassigned to the Bolivian border for a few months and then asked to serve only as a professor back at the Army College. Perón thought he could climb the military ranks if he remained apolitical. But now he knew that power was political, and he was going to have to learn to play the game. He would have to become a politician. Coming up, Perón discovers fascism. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. In 
On September 6, 1930, General José Uriburu staged a coup and installed a military dictatorship in Argentina. In the process, Uriburu purged many of the army's top leaders, including the ambitious 34-year-old Captain Juan Perón. Perón now toiled along the Bolivian border for a bit, biding his time and swearing to himself that he'd never again be on the losing side. The normally apolitical military was now becoming political. Perón knew he needed to adapt. Luckily for Perón, he wouldn't remain an outcast for long. Uriburu's fascist military regime was wildly unpopular. Within a year, he was forced to end the military junta and call free and fair elections. Of course, they were anything but free or fair. A wealthy right-wing coalition known as the Concordancia took power through rigged elections in November of 1931 and installed General Agustin Justo as their puppet president. Many of these politicians had been supporters of Uriburu, but recognized the need to at least keep up the pretense of democracy in order to maintain control. And once Justo was in office, the corruption increased. For the next decade, the Concordancia profited from the economic troubles that had forced the previous government from office. Instead of improving the economy for Argentines, they sold off much of the country's industry and infrastructure to European and North American corporations. These deals, of course, benefited the wealthy landowners and tycoons and further exploited everyone else. The foreign influence also fostered a sense of nationalism and anti-imperialism among average Argentines who resented external control over their daily lives. After President Justo came to power, Juan Perón was promoted to major, and the new major kept an eye on the national mood. When push came to shove, he wasn't going to make another political mistake in backing the wrong man. Right away, Perón could tell that the national mood was against the Concordancia. Everyone knew the elections were rigged, and they were disgusted by how quickly the new regime had revealed itself to be even more corrupt than its predecessor. Unfortunately, the corrupt government had the backing of several military generals. Any citizen rebellion would have been futile. As a result, Perón didn't want to be too closely associated with the regime. However, he knew that he needed to distinguish himself in the military if he wanted to continue climbing the ranks. To split the difference, in 1936, he managed to get himself appointed as military attaché in Chile, where he would spend a couple of years. In early 1938, Perón was sent to Italy on a special assignment. He was to learn mountain warfare with Italian troops in the Alps, as well as act as the embassy's military attaché in Rome. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. But Perón learned far more than mountain warfare. Living in Italy from 1938 to 1940, he was immersed in Mussolini's fascism. As he traveled around Europe, he also had the opportunity to see Nazi Germany at the height of Hitler's power. Perón couldn't help but be impressed by the way these dictators were single-handedly reshaping their countries. And the fact that they came from Italy and Germany, two countries with historical ties to Argentina, made it all the more impressive to Perón. He admired the way Mussolini and Hitler rallied their supporters through mass spectacle. He appreciated how impressive, organized, and well-equipped both militaries were. 
and perhaps he noted how Mussolini, a fellow soldier, galvanized trade unions and focused many of his policies on the working class. No politician in Argentina had ever managed to harness the power of the working class, but here in Italy, Perón saw potential. But if there was one European country that left a bitter taste in Perón's mouth, it was Argentina's former colonizer, Spain. On his journey back to Argentina, Perón passed through the newly fascist Spain. Perón was horrified to see what the bloody civil war had done to the country. He swore that he would never let Argentina descend into mass violence. By the time Perón returned to Buenos Aires in 1940, though, his country had reached its breaking point. Years of the Concordancia's corrupt rule had destroyed the economy and frayed the people's faith in their government. Anti-imperialist and nationalist sentiments were also high, and not just because of corporate interests. The U.S. had joined World War II on the side of the Allies and was pressuring Latin American countries to do the same. But Argentina was close with Germany and Italy and hesitant to take sides. Instead, they hoped to stay out of the war altogether. Considering all these rising tensions, Colonel Juan Perón was unsurprised to find the military once again talking about staging a coup. The government had clearly lost legitimacy, if it had ever had it at all, and was failing the country. Something had to be done. This time, Perón was ready. In 1942, the colonel helped found a conservative military secret society known as the Group of United Officers, or the GOU. The GOU's mission was simple. Keep the country out of World War II, focus on national defense, combat communism, and reject a political system that was founded in fraud. By uniting a number of officers behind a common cause, Perón and his cohort exponentially increased their power. Suddenly, any conversation about the military's involvement in politics had to include the GOU. Perón had made himself a political force to be reckoned with. The GOU's grand entrance into politics came in January 1943. The opposition presidential candidate suddenly died, giving then-president Ramon Castillo the chance to declare his own successor. As the military's only political bloc, the GOU forcefully denounced Castillo's corrupt behavior. Suddenly, both the political opposition and the other military leaders found themselves siding with the GOU. The moment to work together finally came in early June when Castillo gave word that he was going to fire a GOU officer who was expected to lead the opposition in the upcoming election. Such a blatant attempt to silence an opponent before an election was the tip of the iceberg. Castillo had to go. And the man asked to lead the coup was General Arturo Rausson. On June 4, 1943, Rausson led 10,000 men in a march across Buenos Aires to take the presidential palace Casa Rosada. Much like the 1930 coup, no civilians were injured. However, a small skirmish broke out at a small naval station, but it wasn't enough to save Castillo from being overthrown. The infamous decade, as the previous 13 years became known, was over. While the new government scrambled to establish itself, the GOU helped move its members into important positions of power. 
Rao's son only lasted as president for two days until the GOU-affiliated General Pedro Ramirez was named president. Perón's close friend, General Edelmiro Farrell, became the Minister of War and, later also, vice president. Meanwhile, Perón became both Secretary of the Ministry of War and the head of the new Secretariat of Labor and Social Welfare, a move that confused many military and political leaders. Why would this rising star want the labor office? Didn't he know it was a career dead end? But Perón was savvier than he let on. He knew that controlling the labor office was the perfect way to get to the top. He was going to win over the working class and use their support to take control of all of Argentina. Coming up, Perón builds a cult of personality. Now back to the story. By the end of 1943, 48-year-old Army Colonel Juan Perón held real political power for the first time in his life. He was now the Secretary of Labor and Social Welfare and the chief aide to the Minister of War. It was all part of his plan to obtain total power, power that could sustain any future coup. Remembering how effectively Mussolini had marshaled labor syndicates and the working class as his base, Perón's plan was to use his new position to enact sweeping pro-worker reforms. His intentions were far from altruistic. Argentina's major political parties usually never catered to the needs of the country's lower classes. Perón recognized that he could become a powerful and beloved figure if he cast himself as the defender of the masses. On December 2, 1943, he gave his first radio broadcast as the Secretary of Labor and Social Welfare. Although he had been meeting with labor leaders since the June coup, this was Perón's chance to introduce himself and his agenda to the people. Perón pitched himself as a problem solver for Argentina. While he focused on unity between workers, employers, and the state, the subtext was obvious to the wary industrialists listening. The government had never before intervened in labor issues. Perón's declaration made it clear that he would be backing laborers. Perón also hinted at a broader political pitch. He blamed all of the struggles of the last infamous decade on bad actors and foreign influences. His nationalistic Argentina for Argentines rhetoric appealed to the long-suffering masses. All these problems, he seemed to be saying, weren't their fault. Perón followed through on his promises to the working class. He established everything from paid holidays and retirement benefits to labor courts and rent freezes. He regulated child labor, helped establish job protection laws, and improved working conditions. He built close working relationships with receptive union leaders and pushed out those who weren't receptive by helping rivals establish new unions. Before long, Juan Perón was seen as the sole champion of the working class, who had long assumed that their government had forgotten them. During this time, Ramirez's administration was facing increased domestic and international pressure about its neutrality in World War II. In an attempt to placate the Allies, in January of 1944, Ramirez announced that Argentina would end its diplomatic ties with Japan and Germany. 
This move enraged the president's nationalist supporters and thus planted the seeds of his own downfall. Seizing this perfect political moment, Perón got his cronies in the military junta to force Ramirez out. On February 25, 1944, Edelmiro Faro became the new president. Shortly thereafter, Perón was named the Minister of War, in addition to being the Secretary of Labor, of course. Juan Perón now essentially controlled both the military and the working class. Everyone now knew that the ambitious colonel was the true power behind the throne. But in keeping with Argentine tradition, forces began to turn against Perón almost immediately. In the summer of 1944, the military junta chose Perón as Farrell's new vice president, in addition to his two other roles. As thrilled as his supporters were, Perón's high profile turned middle and upper class people against him. Despite the goodwill he had been establishing as a man of the people, Perón was now the major face of an unelected regime. There had been a promise of democracy, And yet democracy still hadn't returned, even though life was changing for the better. It didn't help that the same year, Perón began dating a flamboyant young actress named Eva Duarte, known as Evita. Not only was she an obvious social climber, but the fact that the unmarried couple were openly living together horrified the deeply Catholic country. The arrival of a new U.S. ambassador, Sproul Braden, in May 1945, threw more gas onto the fire. Braden saw Perón and the Farrell regime as pro-Nazi and pro-fascist. As soon as he arrived, the Spanish-speaking ambassador began informing the Argentine people that the U.S. would not abandon them to those ideologies it had just defeated. Though Perón cast Braden as yet another meddling imperialist, the Americans' words emboldened Perón's enemies. Parties across the political spectrum and even members of the military took to the streets en masse to demand democracy be restored. In response, Perón rallied the unions and urged them to demonstrate in support of him. As anti-government protests became daily occurrences, Violence began to break out between the police, who broadly supported Perón, and the demonstrators, many of whom were leftist students. Soon, far-right nationalist Peronists formed armed groups to fight and attack protesters in the streets. The regime tried to defuse the situation by finally reinstating the Constitution and setting democratic elections by the end of the year. But it was too late. On September 19, 1945, around 400,000 people took to the streets of Buenos Aires to protest the repressive, unelected, proto-fascist government. They demanded that Farrell and Perón resign and that new democratic elections be held immediately. Perón ignored their demands but was livid at the sight of the crowd. After two years in power pulling the country's strings, he felt he deserved his position. Who are these urban elites to try to force him out? Tensions continued to mount when five days later, a rogue military general tried and failed to overthrow the government. In response, Farrell ordered the police to arrest as many of the opposition leaders as possible. Most of the people arrested were released within a couple of days, but the damage was done. Perón had shown what kind of leader he would be if he continued unchecked. 
his regime had to go. By early October 1945, the street fighting in Buenos Aires had turned deadly. Students and opposition protesters faced off against the police and far-right militants, and civilians were being killed in the violence. Finally, the military decided to intervene, though not in its usual way. After a friend of Evita's was given a prestigious bureaucratic position despite allegations of corruption, a number of officers asked General Eduardo Avalos to talk to Perón. But when Perón dismissed both Avalos and the concerns, the matter escalated. Soon, members of the military were talking about everything from storming the Casa Rosada to assassinating Perón. General Avalos had no interest in violence, but knew he wouldn't be able to keep the angry soldiers in check for long. The only acceptable solution was for Perón to resign. Perón fought back using every trick up his sleeve to stymie his opponents. But when his steadfast patron, President Farrell, sided with Avalos and refused to see Perón, the colonel knew he was out of options. On the evening of October 8, 1945, Perón reluctantly tendered his resignation. However, Perón requested that he be allowed to address the workers one final time. After all, he had worked for them, and they had a right to know why he was abandoning them. But instead of making a farewell radio address, Perón rallied his supporters. He reiterated his dedication to the working-class cause and all but swore he would be back. A few days later, Perón was taken to the prison island of Martín García. President Farrell and General Avalos swore that it was only for Perón's safety, especially after assassination talks, and that Perón wasn't being arrested. But to Perón's supporters, this looked like a political arrest. It represented all of the elite's antipathy towards the working class. They so disdained the workers that they would rather get rid of the people's champion than maintain any of the social welfare changes. The next week, word spread that Perón had been transferred to an army hospital in Buenos Aires. In fact, the rumor was a ploy to trick Avalos into bringing him back to the city. To Perón's supporters, this was a chance to let their voice be heard. On October 17th, Perón's supporters' anger turned into action. The labor unions called for strikes, and the workers took to the streets, demanding Perón be freed. Hundreds of thousands of people, many from poor and indigenous backgrounds, filled the boulevards of Buenos Aires and swept towards the army hospital and the presidential palace. They weren't going to leave until they'd seen for themselves that Perón had been set free. Finally, Farrell and Avalos allowed Perón to address the crowds from the Casa Rosada. Perón said he would, but he had demands. He wanted the government to be handed over to the Supreme Court so they could run the next elections. But Perón had one more request. He wanted to resign from the armed forces. His wish was granted. He was now further on his way to becoming a civilian politician, a representative of the people rather than of the army. When Perón stepped out onto the balcony, the crowd roared. He was no longer just a political leader. He was seen as a savior, an object of adoration. The time had come to make his final move toward total control. Less than a month later, democratic elections were finally announced for early next year. 
Perón inevitably declared his candidacy for president. Three political parties supported him, a far-right militant nationalist party, a radical cult of personality party, and a pro-democracy workers' rights party. Meanwhile, his opponents ranged from communists to old-school centrists. Recognizing the necessity of uniting in order to defeat the charismatic Perón, they nominated a bland candidate who carried zero baggage from the infamous decade. The opposition hoped that Perón's campaign would implode. The only people who liked him were the working class, who had never been a political force in Argentina. Plus, it was well known that Perón admired Hitler and Mussolini. Despite Argentina's prior connections with Germany and Italy, no reasonable Argentine would vote for someone who supported recently defeated dictators. Hoping to help the pro-democracy opposition, the U.S. State Department decided to compile a report of its findings about Perón's affiliations with Nazis and fascists. Known as the Blue Book, the dossier dropped on February 11, 1946, less than two weeks before the election. But the Blue Book backfired. Much of the information included in the dossier was already in circulation. Instead of hurting Perón, it gave his campaign ammunition to argue that foreign interests were interfering in Argentina's democratic elections. For a populist nationalist like Perón, this blatant imperialist meddling was the perfect weapon. After what both Perón and his opponents noted was one of Argentina's fairest elections, Perón won. Which is why the 50-year-old Perón was the only one not surprised by his victory. The Argentine establishment discovered for the first time that their country wasn't necessarily the place they thought it was. The first democratically elected president in decades was a nationalist populist who catered to the working class. And now that Perón finally had a legitimate electoral mandate, he had no intention of ever letting go of power, no matter the cost. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll chronicle Perón's presidency, his downfall, and the long shadow that the populist dictator has cast over Argentine politics ever since. Among the many sources we used, we found Perón, a biography by Joseph A. Page, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>